Well, we continue in our look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And uh, Matthew 24, as we saw last week, was uh, um, Jesus really answering, looking, answering one question, but giving it in two parts. Uh, it all stemmed from the attempt by the disciples to impress Jesus with the, the great temple in Jerusalem. And it was a glorious sight. And as I was saying to the folks in Cape Traverse this morning, last Sunday evening when I went home, uh, it's, YouTube is wonderful. It, it's great. I like YouTube. You can fix things. You can learn songs. You can do what. But there, there's lots of videos on there on the fall of Jerusalem. So maybe today uh, you can look up a video on the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And it was it, there was one, I watched a couple of them, and there was one uh, that was produced by the BBC, and it, it, it uh, laid out the historical uh, circumstances uh, surrounding the fall of Jerusalem with Titus, uh, the emperor, and so on. Uh, Titus was the general at that time who became an, an emperor. Uh, but uh, it showed how they laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, the politics even within, uh, the, 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 among the Jews, as to what was the best way. Should they negotiate with the Romans and uh, uh, you know, opt for better terms? Or should they just fight to the death like many of the zealots were wanting to do? And so there was even within the city of Jerusalem, there was a real tug of war taking place as to how they should defend themselves. So I, I really commend that to you, that if you look up, uh, I, I can't speak for, there were, there were probably a dozen uh, little documentaries on it, but the one I saw was very good, and uh, it would be good for you to take a look at that today or sometime through the week. Uh, but... Jesus, in looking forward here, he does so in two parts. He looks at the near future and the distant future. And the first half of this uh, uh, chapter has been uh, given over to the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years after Jesus' death. And we see that how much sense that makes on two fronts, one, they rejected the Son of God. Their ultimate crime was not the rejecting of some prophet or some normal king, but the very Son of God, and it brought with it in its wake the ultimate judgment. The city was destroyed. Men, women, and children destroyed. The temple laid to waste. And we saw that that was a... Although that the exact historical circumstances don't play themselves out the same way. The principle remains the same. That this is what happens when we reject God's ultimate gift to us. A gift of high value, but at the same time a gift of the utmost necessity. That's what makes the rejection of the Son of God so important. Because of the value of who He is as God, but the, on the second hand, the absolute necessity of that gift in that it, He saves us from eternal damnation. That's what makes 
the wrath of God apparent in 70 AD. And whether you are, as we saw last week, in 70 AD or 2021, the same principle applies. And that's what we're going to see here. We're, we have moved on from 70 AD to some uh, time in the future. We don't know when. Read it for yourself. Verse 36, But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. And we'll look at that, but the Father only. So that day no one knows. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But the fact remains that it will come, it will also be a time of judgment. It will not be a time of local judgment. Everything that we've seen in the Bible up until this point has been localized. When Jesus comes back, it will be universalized. Just as the Gospel is spreading universally today. There is a universal spreading of the Gospel. It's not localized to Israel. He's not the God of the Jews only. He's not the God of a certain race of people only. He's the Lord of the earth. And now, because the Gospel has gone universal, the judgment will also go universal. But we are able to look back and dispel those notions of doubt as to will these things actually take place. And you might be sitting here with a certain measure of uh, 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 incredulity in your mind saying, will this really happen? These are some pretty amazing things that Jesus says. Will they really happen? The wonderful thing is that these things have already happened, and I pointed out in Psalm 47, in many ways already, in a local way. Jesus raised the dead. He did it particularly. Here He will do it universally. Jesus made judgments. There He did it particularly. Here He will do it universally. There, Jesus brought restoration, physically, spiritually, completely, in particular. Here, He will do it universally. So, it's not like we don't already, are, are, are not able to look back and say, look, this has already taken place on a smaller scale. It's just now a matter of degrees, right? It's just a matter of degree. And if God is able to do all of these things miraculously and wonderfully, so much so that it called forth the praises of God's people in the Psalms, God, you're awesome. Why? What did God do? He subdued the nations around Israel. Oh, wow. And it called forth all these wonderful Psalms. What are we to expect then when we project into the future what God is going to do on a cosmic level? This is what Jesus is saying here. He's moving beyond the local, the national, to the international and the cosmic. 
And that's what you have in the language of Jesus. That's what you have as you move beyond into the New Testament. The, the rivers start to overflow their banks and say it's not just one little river now of, of, called Israel, it's overflowing its banks. The glory has reached such capacity that the banks can't hold it. And now we look for a new heavens and a new earth. Not just the land of Israel that God is concerned about, but a new heavens and a new earth. A cosmic restoration. The Bible promises it. The Bible has always promised it, not just in the New Testament, but that language of a new heavens and a new earth comes from eight centuries before Jesus even came. And so what we find here is verse 29 to 31, which we are going to look at this morning. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its, give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. and They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Last week we talked about the time of tribulation. And again, I, as I suggested, there is a wide variety of opinion in terms of identifying that time of tribulation. Uh, some uh, dispensationalists will say that it refers to a particular seven years uh, at the end of time. Others treat it more in a broad way, which is how I would treat it in terms of the tribulation that the church will pass through from the time of Jesus' first coming till his second coming. Recently, I, I just saw, I think it was yesterday or the day before, uh, on a video of the Voice of the Martyrs, that 73% of Christians live in restricted countries. And I've often said that we are in the minority here in the West in terms of the relative comfort that we live in. But most Christians live under the shadow of persecution and the reality of persecution. And so my inclination and the inclination of many others is to take that tribulation period as extending over the whole period of the church. If you said to those being burned at in Nero's Rome, burned to death, or those other Christians being burned at the stake like William Tyndale uh, for their faith, that they're not going through a time of tribulation, uh, uh, you, you would be looked at very strangely. I, I would feel I would be going through a, a time of tribulation if I were being burned at a stake or being hung, drawn, and quartered or any other number of ways in which a person dies. But that time will come to an end. It will not go on one second longer than it's meant to. Why? Because God is controlling that time period. God uses suffering. And that God can extend 
his church through suffering. That both of these things, since Jesus left us, have been going on. The church is being persecuted and the kingdom of God has been growing. I could dare say that many of you here this morning are here because of tribulation in your life. That you pass through a time of difficulty, as I was saying to the folks in Cape Travers this morning. That many of those, perhaps, could uh, were owe their being in the kingdom of God because of some difficulty that they pass through. Being broken, being emptied, being brought to nothing so that they're now able to see the all-sufficient love and goodness of God in their lives. So one doesn't exclude the other, and both are working parallel throughout the last 2,000 years. Intense persecution. The church in China has grown so rapidly over the last 60 years through the time of persecution. Um, and, and, And so God is allowing that persecution to go on. Philippians 1 tells us that God has, it, it has been appointed unto you, as unto us, appointed by who? By God. To believe, but also to suffer for His sake. You mean God appoints my suffering? It's God that's in control of that? He allows pain in and out of my life? He allows trouble in and out of my life? Yes, He does. He is the... He is the author of that. That gives us incredible peace. Because we know that our pain and our struggles are not random. Doesn't that give you great peace that if you're going through something this morning, you'd say, this has been ordained of God in some way to shape and to mold me. And as I read in Romans 8, that is working together like ingredients in a cake for my good so that I might know Him. That I might know what life is all about. That, it might, that life is not about my little existence here. But that it's about something more glorious and wonderful. But it's been appointed. And Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will come. Not one moment later, not one moment sooner, but just at the right time. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians and in Romans. That Jesus died at the right time. In Galatians 4, he says that that God brought forth His Son in the fullness of time. In other words, He was delivered at the right time into this world. And so it is with your life and my life. We're not to expect that God does, He only keeps perfect timing in the life of Jesus, but He keeps perfect timing in your life and my life. Including the pain and the suffering that we pass through. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. He's talking here about a cosmic upheaval. The end of one age, basically in the beginning of another. It's a time that will be characterized by the passing away of the old and the introduction of the new. And as we'll see in a moment, it's a time of judgment and a time of ingathering. But he uses this language of all the things that 
people looked to, the sun, the moon, and the stars to guide them. You, in those days, and even up to today, you regulated your life by the stars, by the seasons and all of these things. And now those things which were so consistent are now in upheaval. Now, is God saying that an actual star will fall upon the earth? Well, the earth is a millions of times smaller than, than even the most minor star. He's using apocalyptic language. He's using language of imagery to, to conjure up in our mind something amazing and fantastic. We often read about streets of gold. Are we to expect that we'll be actually walking on streets of gold in, in heaven? Well, we may. But that's not what the point of the, the image is for. It's to uh, uh, conjure up in our mind that heaven is going to be far greater than you could ever imagine. It goes beyond our wildest dreams. That gold is going to be so common that we'll be able to walk on it like brick or like dirt. In fact, if you aspire only to say, oh, streets of gold, you've limited yourself. Because really what it's saying, it goes beyond gold. Gold will be common. You see, and this is the language that he's using here. It's a time of cosmic upheaval. And it will be a time of complete transformation. It will be a time of renewal, even for the earth itself. As we read in uh, uh, Romans 8, in that uh, great verse where it talks about the future glory. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, that is God, who subjected it in hope. So even what we are seeing around us is due for a makeover, is due for renovation. Look at what Paul says. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There will be a universal renewal. Everything will be changed. Everything will be different. And yet, many things will stay the same. A new heavens. It will be a heavens, but it will be new. A new earth. It will be like the old earth, but it will be new and glorious. The curse will be gone. Tsunamis won't be swamping over people. Earthquakes won't be destroying people. You'll have a new earth. And Jesus says this, he uses this language of cosmic upheaval to describe the change that will take place. It also suggests to us that the coming of Jesus will not be secret. You remember what we saw last week? See that no one leads you astray, verse 5. For many will come in My name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Then in verse 24, false Christs will 
And false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If possible. Take note of that. It's not, in other words, it's not going to happen. But in, by that I mean the deceiving of the elect. But Jesus appearing will be visible. It will be visible to all. He will come and it will not be something done in a secret. It won't be a quiet event. Much like His first coming. His first coming was, again, localized. It was a very quiet, private event in many ways. An angel appears unto Mary. God appears, to, the Lord appears, to, or rather an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Two angels are at Jesus' graveside when Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is taken back up into heaven and received into, into a cloud in the presence of His disciples. Very, in, in many ways, private situations. But here, it, he, Jesus is saying that that will all change because it's, the kingdom of God is not localized to a certain city or a certain nation or a certain people anymore. But it's universal. It's all over the place. And so he uses language not of national, but international uh, 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 upheaval. The language is also that of judgment. For the language that Jesus uses was first used to describe the judgment of God upon Babylon many, many years ago. In Isaiah 15, uh, 13, rather, the chapter begins, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So Isaiah says, The children of Israel are going to be taken away into Babylon. But God will judge the Babylonians by bringing them down and, and, and destroying them. And this is the language that is used. Verse 10, for this, uh, look, verse, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And so you have there the, the forecast of the judgment of Babylon, but then looking beyond the borders of Babylon to the world. Jesus uses the same language to describe His second coming. The Apostles' Creed says that, uh, he, that Jesus ascended into heaven and He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where He shall come to judge the living and the dead. That has been part of the Christian creed since year dot. Going way back, it's been the confession of the church that Jesus ascended into heaven and He will return in the clouds of heaven as is described here. And He will come for a time of judgment. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That is 
Again, Jesus drawing upon Daniel, the prophet Daniel, where Daniel sees the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, the, the Son coming before the Father, as He is invested with all dominion and authority. And Jesus is now saying, it is this very person, Myself, who will come. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is why I say that the language of cosmic upheaval points us to the great judgment. It's judgment language that he first applied to Babylon, then Egypt, and now cosmically to the world. And the Jews would have understood that. Those who read this Gospel would have understood that, hey, this is language that we haven't heard since Isaiah and Ezekiel, where they talked about God judging the evil of these nations. But now Jesus is saying that that's applied to the world as a whole. And He extends that with this word, tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because the one who was rejected will, is now coming as judge. The one who was given to this world. God so loved the world. Not God so loved the Jews. Not God so loved Western Europe or North America. But God so loved the world that He gave His own begotten Son. That whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. They will see with their eyes, as I said at the beginning, the value of who is coming. Who is it? It's the Son of Man. Why did He die? Because my eternal soul was in peril. And I rejected Him. I said no to Him. I said it was antiquated and foolish and non-scientific and not worthy of the age in which I live. And too exclusive. It wasn't broad enough. And for whatever reason, I said no to Him. But now I see Him, the Son of Man, coming in His glory with all His angels. And I know now who He is. He is the Son of Man. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 6, and verse 15, about those who behold such a sight, what their response will be. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Awesome words. Calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall. Fall on us! Fall on us to shield us from the wrath of the Lamb. They acknowledge who He is. He is the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? He is the sacrifice who was sent to say, I have come to pay for your sins. 
I want to be your Savior, to save you from your sins. And now He is the Lamb whom they have rejected. And they mourn when they see Him. They've come face to face with the One whom they have rejected. And friends, it will go far worse for the people who have been brought up in Christian homes, who have known, who have sat in pews just like this, day after day, month after month, year after year, hearing, hearing God pleading with your soul, come and find refuge in My Son. Find freedom and free forgiveness of sin. A new beginning, a new start. God describes how He he yearned for His people in the Old Testament. He says, every day I hold out My hand to a disobedient people. I stretch it out. I say, here I am. Not why. Uh, Here I am. And the people of old rejected. That's why Jesus is using the language, friends, that He's using to instill within our mind a sense of urgency, a sense of sin is serious. Why will they mourn? Why will the tribes of the earth mourn? Because God in His infinite kindness and goodness gave them a way. And they said, no, we will not have this man to reign over us. His blood be on us and on our children. That's what they said. And now He comes in the clouds with glory and power bringing that judgment upon them. What if that were to happen today? Would you be ready? What would you say? And so the, the, the language is urgent. It's powerful. It's, it, it causes conflict within us. The sun uh, it, it, not giving its light. The stars falling from the heavens. The power of heavens shaken. It's to rock us to our core and say something catastrophic is impending. And like those early distant warning systems that we have built into almost every element of society that we listen to, friends, we must listen to these early warning systems from God's Word and say, this is true. God has warned His people. And we've seen what God thinks of sin because He said, the only way I can deal with The sins of my people is through the death of my son. There's no other way. He's got to die and he chose to die because he knew that that's how God feels about sin. wouldn't Wouldn't you think that God would have chosen some other way than the death of his own precious son? Don't you think he would have just swept our sins under the rug if he could have? But he could not. Because he's a good God. He's good and he cares about justice. He cares about right and wrong and evil. He cares about your evil and he doesn't like it. He cares about your sin and he hates it. And the only way for him to to deal with your sin adequately and be true to himself, the only way he could do it would say, you son, you must go. You must die. You must become one of them. And he said, yes, I will. Here I am. Send me. I will go. I give myself 
because I know how urgent. I know, I know that there's no other way. I will go. I will do it. So Jesus, how can Jesus speak more urgently? With His mouth. Not only with His mouth. His body. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when He knew what was coming, he, it tells us He sweat as it were great drops of blood. He cried unto His Father, Oh, Father, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from Me. He was sorrowful even unto death. He spoke of the urgency not only with His words, but with His body in upheaval. He wept over Jerusalem as He sat on that donkey going into the city. He looked down on the city and He sobbed and He sobbed and He sobbed. Oh, Jerusalem! If only you knew today the things that belong to your peace, but now they are hidden from you. How I would have gathered you. Jesus spoke not with words only, but with His body. It will be a time of judgment, but lastly, it will be a time of Great ingathering in verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of heaven to the one end of heaven to the other. For one group of people, it will be a time of mourning when they see the one whom they have rejected, the tribes of the earth. But then, at the same time, it will be a time of the reapers, the angels going and gathering for the, from the four winds of heaven. In other words, there will be not one corner of existence. And that's the way Jesus puts it here. From one end of heaven to the other. There will be not one crevice where God can't get in to bring His, a soul out of. You're coming with Me. You're being gathered in. The angels will be instrumental in this. How it will all work, we don't know the physics of it. <laughs> But the Bible tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to minister to the heirs of salvation. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. 1 Thessalonians 4 says the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And that trumpet sound will be a sound of joy to the people of God. Much like in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, which is inscribed, by the way, on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. You go there and it talks about God setting the, the captives free on the Liberty Bell. But during the year of Jubilee, the trumpet was sounded throughout all the land, to say to the people, you are forgiven. You are restored. You're now at one with God again. And at the end of time, Jesus says, the great jubilee will begin. An eternal rest. An et a great ingathering where God will gather His people from all over and we shall ever be with the Lord. Jesus says the hour is coming in which all in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forward. They that have done good to the resurrection of life and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Again, you say, that's too fantastic for me to believe. 
It's already happened. The widow of Nain's son. Jesus stops the funeral. Son, get up. And he gets up. The tomb of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, after being dead in the grave for four days, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Unwrap him and let him go. It's already happened. So what it means is a matter now of degrees. And if Jesus in His earthly humility was able to do that, how much more now being given all dominion and authority in heaven and on earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords to command the angels of heaven and to command the, the living and the dead to call them out of their graves. This will be the great ingathering of God's people. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the Lord Himself, He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the sound of the trumpet of God. What a great day that will be for God's people. When we will look into the face, not of a judge. We won't be calling for the mountains to fall on us. We will look into the face of the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. And we will say, we are home. We will say, we are whole. That the time of trouble and tears have ended. The time of reconciliation with God And the joy that that brings has now been brought in eternally. Never to end. And so friends, we must prayerfully reckon with these things today. I'm not asking you to think about these things after you go home. I'm asking you to think about them and pray about them now. As God is speaking to you now, that you pray in your heart, if it's not been the case, Lord, help me. Open my eyes to see the glory of the Son of God. Help me to feel the urgency with which Jesus Himself spoke. He who is the truth. He who is the life. He who is the way. He who spoke with His body and blood and tears and death and whose ministry and sacrifice you vindicated by raising Him out from the dead, saying, I've accepted Him and His sacrifice and all who believe in Him. Father, this is the One through whom I come to You. And this is, this is the confidence that we have no matter what life we've lived, no matter who we are, what background we come from, no matter what we've been up until this very moment. The Bible gives us that promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the book of Acts, that's what it tells us. In the last days will be constituted by that upheaval, but then it ends with those beautiful words, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is our wisdom this morning, friends. This is exactly what God would have you to do. It's not all the time that I can go around saying, I know what we should do. I mean, there's lots of people that would challenge that. But I'm telling you, from God's Word, that this is what He would have you to do, to believe on the name of the Son of God. 
and in believing have life in His name. Let's pray. Lord, as we close this morning, we uh, 